0: February is Black History Month, and odds are, if you have been on the internet or if you have watched the news, you've probably heard something this month about black cemeteries. Certainly, awareness has been raised, and cemeteries in particular have been in attention in the black community, particularly with the death of John Lewis last summer and the more recent death of Hank Aaron here in Atlanta. But overall, black cemeteries continue to be... Noteworthy and newsworthy for a number of reasons, most often because of how neglected they are. I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb of the View. So, I've recorded this episode three times now. Not three times like I forgot to turn on the mic or the recording quality wasn't good. I've re recorded it multiple times because I don't want to get this wrong. I think that this is a very important topic and I want to talk about black cemeteries and part of my problem, one of the reasons I've put this off so long is because it's a big topic. There are about 47 different angles that I could approach this from. And I was having trouble settling on one of them. And in retrospect, maybe I should have done what I did back in November with American Indian burials and have done multiple weeks. But even on American Indian burials, even though I heard from a number of indigenous folks that they were very happy with how I covered it, they were happy with the topics I chose, I still feel like overall I only scratched the surface. And that's because it is a broad topic that you cannot boil it down to one essential episode. And that's one of the reasons that I finished that particular series with the episode on the myth of the Indian burial ground. Because I think that that is the one that is most often portrayed and that is the one that is most often seen. As far as black cemeteries go, I don't know what people see. What overall I think people see is the fact that they don't see it. Now, if you live in the South, odds are every major city has a large black cemetery. Here in Atlanta, it's Southview, which I bring it up just because everybody has probably seen it on the news between John Lewis and Hank Aaron. They're both buried there. If you listen to the Martin Luther King episode last month, it is where he was originally buried. It's where Mama and Papa King are. Southview is legendary among U.S. black cemeteries. But every southern city has one. For example, Shadow Lawn in Birmingham will come up today. In the north, that is somewhat less common, though there are certainly examples. But in general, I don't think that most of us, and by most of us I'm going to go with the Caucasians, because... Let's be honest, if you are an adult who is super interested in history and is consistently engaged in what I would consider the sideline history, so if you read history blogs and listen to history podcasts and you are interested in more than a general sense and you are interested in history, you call yourself a, a history nut, those tend to be white people. And I say this because guess what? I work in architectural history and historic preservation. You go to an architectural history or historic preservation conference, I guarantee you it is 95% white. The Association for Gravestone Studies, which I am a member of, has been in existence since 1977. The last conference, I believe we had one black person. This is an institutional problem. I'm not calling anybody out. I'm not saying that these organizations shouldn't exist. I'm just saying that the way that they do outreach and the way that they are marketed predominantly markets to a white population. I see this working in a craft brewery, craft brewing as an industry, and I saw many people acknowledge this during the George Floyd protests. It's a predominantly white industry. And as somebody who sees the patrons who come in, I'm not saying that it's entirely white. But it is still predominantly white. There are certain sectors of the population that are predominantly white. And so as somebody who is a white middle class person, for me to talk about black cemeteries in any meaningful way is hard because I want to get it right. I want to give you the most accurate interpretation And even so, when I look at the examples that I have pulled for today's episode, I feel like they are somewhat lacking because they don't capture the breadth of the topic. It only scratches the surface. You know I was raised Catholic. I can't not be guilty about something. But that being said, I want to try to give an idea of where you can look. And also where I think that the intersection of certain things can change with cultural context. There has long been a fight over the fact that legally... Only marked cemeteries are protected by law. If you remember going back to November when I talked about the issue in Iowa where Native American burials were not protected because they were not marked the same way that traditional white cemeteries were, this is something that also often comes up with slave cemeteries. So there are legal ramifications, and I will admit that I'm going to talk about the segregation of cemeteries. I'm going to talk about how cemeteries were officially desegregated. And this is important because I'm sure that most of you read within the past couple of weeks about the Louisiana cemetery caretaker who was fired for telling a black family that they could not buy a burial plot based on a 1953 regulation that had been put in place that said that the cemetery only accepted Caucasian burials. That was this year. This was just a couple weeks ago. So these racially restrictive covenants on burial places, all of these things, are topics that need to be discussed, are things that need to be addressed. But to start off with, I want to go back early, early in our history to try to first look at how does this start? And I had a hard time because, unfortunately, even with traditional European settlers, often we don't have a lot from the earlier burial grounds. Um, pioneers, you know, notoriously cannot mark their graves in the way that they would have hoped just because of the pressures that are placed on them. Now, I fully acknowledge that this is a narrative that has been kind of warped and twisted a little bit. But I'm going to go with the traditional narrative. I understand that there are probably a ton of inaccuracies with it. But just for a timeline's sake, I'm going to go with the traditional narrative. And that is that the first slaves arrived in the United States in 1619 on the White Lion. They were spoils of the African-Portuguese War. And it was approximately 20 to 30 from the Angola region of Africa arrived at Jamestown. Now... I warn about this for a couple of reasons. First of all, I warn because I remember being shocked. I read a book about the history of Maine and reading about the history of Maine and looking at the dates and being like, this must be wrong. You know, this is before Jamestown in 1609. This is before Plymouth Rock in 1620. Just realize what you read in the history books is a very oversimplified story. So I firmly believe that there were enslaved Africans, there were definitely enslaved natives, there were enslaved persons from the Caribbean and from South America long before 1619. But that is the traditional narrative, so we're going to go with that just to, to help with the timeline. Now, there are very few early cemeteries surviving from this period. So I started looking kind of at the surrounding area and considering things. So... I will give full credit to a woman named Lynn Rainville, which I know Lynn through the Association for Gravestone Studies. She has done; she works at Sweet Briar College in Virginia. She has done an incredible, incredible body of work preserving and documenting African American cemeteries in Virginia. And there are actually websites that list historic African American cemeteries. The first thing that you will find about the majority of these lists is that the earliest of them starts about. 1880, hmm, 1870, 1880, wonder what happened. They're all post-emancipation. Pre-emancipation cemeteries, the records on them are very thin. And I'm starting in the South because, first of all, I'm in the South. Second of all, this is where I think a lot of the understanding has to come from because what's going to happen in other portions of the country, which I will get to New York, I will get to Newport, I will get to some other places, the narrative just isn't the most common one. So I started looking at a few examples. So the example that I chose to start with is actually one that has also recently been in the news, as recently as November 23rd, 2020. And that is the Old First Baptist Church, which was on Nassau Street in Williamsburg, Virginia. And this was a church that was organized in 1776, so the year that the United States became a country, quote-unquote. Um, their first building, so they had, they essentially, a man named Gowan Pamphlet was a tavern owner and a teacher um, and an enslaved man was ordained as the first preacher in 1772. He was the only black preacher of any denomination in the United States at the time. So a few years later, Essentially half of the residents of Williamsburg were black. So there were about 1,800 residents in Virginia in Williamsburg, Virginia, at the time, and of those half were black, mostly enslaved, but there were some freed blacks. And by 1791, this particular church, so the Old First Baptist Church, had 500 members. So that's essentially a third of the population. And a white man named Jesse Cole gave them a carriage house on Nassau Street, which was his, to use as their church. And they worshipped there until 1818, when they built their first physical church building, which was destroyed by a tornado in 1834. And then they built the, the old First Baptist Church, the one that was acknowledged for most of history in 1856. This was demolished in the 1950s by the congregation when they chose to move outside kind of the historic district a couple of streets away where they built a new building. However, the 1856 bell was actually used to dedicate the National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C., which I thought was pretty cool. So needless to say, this church congregation is a long history. Now... I mentioned that the current church was built in the 50s. Apparently, prior to the older 1856 church being demolished, they had proposed building a church annex next door. And when they did at the time in the 50s, one of the women had come forward and made a comment to the effect that Her grandmother was buried in the area where they were proposing the annex. Okay. So that's something to consider. This is the exact quote. So, quote, Sister Epps, most likely Mrs. Fanny Epps, said that her, excuse me, not grandmother, great-grandfather was buried where the annex was supposed to go. This was from, like, the actual church records. And wouldn't you know, last summer, when they were excavating the parking lot, because this area is now a parking lot, of course it is, you'd be amazed how many black cemeteries there are under parking lots. When they started to excavate it, guess what they found? They found grave shafts. And so precisely where this woman had claimed that her great-grandfather was buried, it turns out that there was a cemetery. Now... If we estimate 20 years per generation, so 60 years predating, this would have meant that her grandfather lived probably sometime in the, I don't know, late late 19th century. So it makes sense. If the church was built in 1856, he died in the 1880s, 1890s, there you go. But the fact was that in the ensuing 60 or 70 years, however long it had been since her great-grandfather died... Because it seems to suggest that Sister Epps was elderly herself at the time she made this comment. That that legacy of the cemetery had all but been lost. That it was not a marked cemetery, that it was not a traditional cemetery in the way that we think of. And of course, in my mind, I'm seeing, you know, the graveyard at Bruton Parish Church in Williamsburg, which is, you know, one of the most fantastic colonial era graveyards. And I, I have a book on my shelf, right next to where I'm sitting right now, that details the magnificent monuments there. I have been to concerts, you know, candlelit concerts in that church. When you compare it with something like that, which most of those burials are from a century before Fanny Epps' great grandfather would have been buried, when you make that contrast, again, it is very difficult to understand how, even a century later, even decades after emancipation. Black cemeteries still looked like that. Whereas if you go to black cemeteries today, even objectively speaking, if you go to a black cemetery versus going to a white cemetery, there is still going to be a discrepancy. They are not going to look the same. And it's because there is a legacy of not just institutional racism, but also poverty, in many cases, and, you know, the famous black cemeteries that you see most often on the news, like Holt Cemetery in New Orleans. We tend to only see them in terms of being poor paupers graves with these sad handmade markers. When in reality, you have to understand that for cultural purposes, handmade markers are desirable. And this is something that when I did my research on concrete markers, I had to take a step back because I made that traditional white assumption that handmade grave markers indicate poverty they indicate indicate a lack of resources and that is just not true and I will give a shout out here and I know she listens to the podcast um, to Jordan McAfee who I met in Tuscaloosa and I probably mispronounced her last name so I'm going to apologize for that but she and I both presented on concrete gravestones and she actually presented on makers on people who are out there making concrete gravestones And they were doing it because for the family it was a labor of love. It was considered a service to make the grave marker for the person. As opposed to just going down to the granite company and buying it. And that's the reason that often if you go to black cemeteries in the south you will see two markers. You will see a handmade marker and you will see one that is made by an industrial, you know, traditional granite factory. And I will say that this is a misconception that leads to a lot of problems. And it happened to me on a project recently where I can remember several years ago, one of the designers had come to me and said, you know, it's not a cemetery, this piece of land next to the church. But we know from the church that they bought it for a cemetery. And it was zoned as such. So they zoned it as a cemetery, meaning that they're not going to have to pay taxes on the land. And they said, well, what are the implications? Like, is it a cemetery? Is it not a cemetery? And I said, well, even if it's zoned as a cemetery, if there have been no human burials, it's not a cemetery yet. And so a couple of years went by, and I happened to be surveying that project. And I drove by, and guess what? There were two graves there. There were only two. And they were recent burials, but there were only two. And I remember one of them had a handmade marker. And it was beautiful. It was made out of a piece of shellacked wood. It looked like maybe the man's grandchildren had made it. And I took a picture of this. And then the other one had like a very traditional, you know, husband-wife paired modern granite headstone. But so I took pictures of these two graves. And I went back to the designer and I said, hey, remember how you were worried that that was going to be a cemetery? I was like, well, it is now. And I showed him the pictures and the handmade marker came up first. He was like, well, that's not actually a grave. No, it is. But unfortunately, in modern parlance, we expect graves to look like graveyards. We expect them to look like white graveyards. We expect them to look like what people expect to see. And that is one of the continuing problems. Now, to go back to Williamsburg, and I know I got off on a tangent there, but to go back to Williamsburg, what they did was they are planning to excavate it. And because they still have a number of descendants in the population— they are going to try to identify these individuals and give them an appropriate reburial. They are going to be studied at um, William Women Mary, where they actually have a biology lab, so maybe extract DNA, try to find descendants, and things like that. But it's just amazing to me when you consider that this is the congregation of the first ordained black minister of any denomination in the United States. It only dates from 1776. And they still lost a cemetery because like part of us wants to say like, oh, well, I can see some poor little backwoods church that didn't have any money. I can see how we lost their cemetery. But that's not true. The issue is not how prominent the congregation is. The issue is the race of the people in the congregation because their graveyard is not seen as significant. And. The congregations themselves, as much as they see it as secret, sacred land, they also feel powerless because there has been a long tradition of telling them this exact same thing. And in some cases, it's not even that this was the initial reaction people had. So I offer, for example, the Tucker Cemetery, which is in Hampton County, Virginia, or excuse me, Hampton, Virginia. And a woman named Thelma Green Williams. And she started researching the cemetery as part of her genealogy. And discovered that it was likely the burial ground where William, who is believed to be the first known African birth in the New World. His parents are Anthony and Isabella, who were both brought to America as slaves. This is where he was buried. Now, This goes with the very traditional 1619 narrative. I find it hard to believe that there were no babies born in the intermittent five years. But again, this is a pretty significant site if that is true. So Thelma Williams died in 2006. However, looking back, one of her cousins found out that her great-great-grandfather, Thomas Tucker had previously bought the land and this was in the 1890s. It was owned by the Old Dominion Land Company and the family had tried to buy back the land because they knew it was a cemetery. This is now 120 years ago. So often this narrative that land is not significant is really a convenient one. It's one that I think certain white people have made up to make themselves feel better by saying, well, you know, if even the family didn't care about the cemetery and even the family wasn't taking care of it. And I say this because I have read legal petitions to remove graves that say the exact same thing that say, well, the family's not taking care of it. It's so sad. It's so neglected. There are beer bottles on graves. There's trash on graves. You know, wouldn't it be better if we just removed these burials and put them in a nice shiny new Memorial park? I've read them. That's the argument. It's my favorite poltergeist argument. Well, it doesn't really matter. The families can visit them five minutes more down the road. It's not a big deal. It's only five minutes more down the road. And it's a brand shiny new park. And isn't it great? We can also build a house here with a beautiful vista of the valley. It's the same argument. It's still crap. Because it's not true. Because over 120 years ago, somebody was already arguing that this land was sacred, that this land needed to be preserved. Now, it might not have the exact same characteristics as a white cemetery does. But you know what? There has been a great deal of study about the way that slave cemeteries in particular are marked. So, for example, there's been a great deal of research on the slave cemetery at Avoca in Virginia, where they look at the fact that adult graves are generally marked by eye-shaped stones, and these are stones that are shaped. So they are something that human hands has shaped as a marker. In addition, they almost always see that pink quartz is used to mark the graves of children. And they know this because they've done ground-penetrating radar. Now, because we, as white people, don't use pink quartz to mark the graves of children, we use, say, marble lambs or angels, does that mean that those graves are any less significant? Absolutely not. And this is where study of cemeteries is important because you need to understand that there is not one type of cemetery, that there is not one way of memorializing. Because when we do that kind of cultural relativism, what happens is, is that material culture is lost because that material culture is not our own. Now, unfortunately, the situation is... Many of those early black cemeteries are gone. They already are. They are parking lots and Walmarts and interstates. They're no longer there because they were lost and there was no recognition of that material culture. I know I've talked extensively about the American highway system and how in the 1950s we plowed through a lot of cemeteries. Because that material culture was not as significant. And if you talk to historians, they will agree that, you know, our modern sacredization of cemeteries is in many ways a modern idea that in the past people did not see things quite as sacredly, but that's a different discussion for a different day. Um, But you know, it's one of those things be cognizant of it. If you are in Savannah, Georgia the next time, and you happen to be down by the Massey school, you're standing on the black cemetery. You can go to colonial park cemetery. You can go to the white cemetery. It's still there. I know I used to work in the school right next door, looked out my window, Saw the cemetery. It's beautiful. Nathaniel Green's buried there. Button Gwinnett. All those important people from the colonial area era. The Habershams. All those people whose names are still all around Savannah. Where are the black people? They're under a square. They're under streets. They are not still there. That's the story that you need to hear. Because the fact is, we can't study this material culture in many cases because it has been erased. All right. Rant over. Let's go north. So, 25 minutes in, let's talk about New England. Let's talk about where I'm from. Now, like most of you who learned American history in school, very little of the history I'm about to tell you is probably anything that you ever heard. The early cemeteries of New England, they do contain slaves. I read a very interesting quote where... They were talking about the fact that New England likes to pretend it didn't engage in slavery, but they certainly profited from it. And that's true. James DeWolf, Bristol, Rhode Island, one of the great profiteers of the slave trade. He didn't live in the South. There were certainly slaves in New England, and you can find them. Often they are not marked as slaves on their grave. And when I say grave, they actually did have gravestones. Lovely carved slate gravestones very similar to those of their masters there have been a number of researchers many of whom I know through the Association for gravestone studies who have studied black graves in New England there's a lot of scholarship online that you can read about it so I'm not going to go too deep into it I'm going to go into a few noteworthy examples the one I'll start with I want to talk about Harvard Because right outside of Harvard Yard, the next time you're in Cambridge, if you decide to stroll through, you can see about 100 yards from Harvard Yard, two gravestones for two slaves who were enslaved by masters at Harvard. Cecily, who died in 1714, who was owned by the Reverend William Brattle. And Jane died 1741, who was enslaved by Andrew Boardman, who was the steward of Harvard College at the time. Now, the part of me that's cynical wants to say, why were these two slaves, both women, signaled out and given not only proper burials, but burials with traditional marked headstones? But I think it's one of those things that when we tend to think about that New England Ivy League, this is not what we associate it with. So I start with Harvard because I don't think that anybody can be exempt from this particular narrative. If you go south, and I will spend a little bit of time here because not only is it my home state, but Newport, at the time of the American Revolution, had one of the largest black populations. Now, you can make the same argument about other places. So, for example, in Boston, pre-revolutionary war, there were about 6,000 blacks in Harvard. Which means that if you were to take all of the colonial era gravestones from Boston, one in six would be for a black person. That's way more than most people like to think. When you heard about black people in Boston, who'd you hear about? Crispus Attucks. I guarantee you, he was the only one you heard about when you heard about the Boston Massacre. A lot of other black people from Boston you heard about? Mm, Probably not. Probably not until maybe the abolitionists Maybe Frederick Douglass. Maybe when you heard about, you know, the 54th and, you know, Robert Gould. But other than that, you don't hear about black people from Boston. At least not during the colonial era, other than Crispus Attucks. But one in six. And that's a lot of history to plow under. Now, that's not to say that all of them have March graves. Not to say that all of them are, you know, in a visible place where you can see them. But they certainly were there. And the estimate is is that most New England cities had similar populations of both free and enslaved blacks. Something to think about. Where does that history go? Now, if you were to see them on headstones, most often these headstones are marked by the words servant of. And this is something that I, living in the South, can attest to up until the 20th century. Because I have seen examples of slaves or formerly enslaved people who died after emancipation who are buried in family cemeteries along with their masters with the words faithful servant. And this is almost ubiquitous throughout New England where you will see servant of. Now in some cases, they can be seen as servant of multiple people indicating their sale which frankly makes me sick to my stomach because the fact is that they are not being identified as an individual. They're being identified as chattel. That's a problem, but these are indications that I'm, I'm frankly grateful for as much as it bothers me that this happened. I am kind of glad that this material culture still exists because otherwise we might not have records of some of these things because some of these individuals lived very short lives. The youngest I have seen is a gravestone for a two-year-old who was identified as servant of someone. That's a two-year-old. We don't tend to think of two-year-olds as slaves, but obviously it happened. So these type of identifying markers that we can see on physical stones, it does make a difference. And in the north it is more common, but again, it's certainly not universal. So, Newport, Rhode Island, if you are not familiar, and many might not know this, at one time was larger than New York City. Um, It still contains the largest percentage of colonial houses per capita of pretty much any place, anywhere, and had a massive, massive black population who worked in a variety of fields most of which were enslaved apprentices to people in skilled trades, whether it was printers, whether it was blacksmiths, stone carvers. As a result, the wealth of not only black gravestones for black individuals, but black manufactured gravestones that we have in Newport is really quite astounding. In fact, um, Pompey Stevens, who Stevens, yes, it is that Stevens family. Um, the John Stevens shop is the longest continuously operating gra- uh, gravestone manufacturer in the United States. Um, very, very famous. It is currently owned by the Benson family, but obviously it was originally owned by John Stevens. Pompey Stevens was obviously an enslaved man who worked for the Stevens family. And it is believed that the gravestones that he carved, which are quite beautiful, are the first signed artworks by any black artist in the United States. Which, when you think about gravestones, we don't necessarily think about artwork. But, and I know I, know I have definitely voiced my opinion on colonial gravestones, I, I am bored to tears with colonial gravestones. They are not my thing. And you know what? I feel okay with them not being my thing basically because they are everybody else's thing. People love them to a stupid extent. There has been books upon books upon books upon articles upon articles written since the 60s all about colonial era gravestones. To the point that when I write papers that are not colonial era gravestones, they can't find people to review them for me because there are no modern scholars in gravestone studies. I wrote about the JFK gravesite, which is now 65 years old, and everybody looked at each other like, "The, the 1960s? Oh, we don't do that. Sorry, 1760s? Yes, we can do that. So I don't feel bad about the fact that I'm not super enthusiastic about them. I cannot pick out, with the exception of the really weird sculptors, I can't pick out individual stones based on flourishes and wing shapes and facial features. I can't do it. If you watch my Instagram stories, I did just invest in a copy of Graven Images, which is the be-all and end-all. But I can say that I think it's pretty extraordinary that the first signed artwork by a black man in the United States is a gravestone. Because the fact was, if it was anything else, it probably would not have survived as long as it did. And Pompey Stevens was incredibly skilled. Now, if you go to Newport today in the Island Cemetery, which if you go over the Newport Bridge and you get off and you head towards Thames Street, you are going to pass right through the middle of it. It's both sides of the road, um, so there's the island cemetery, the newer section where like all the rich mansion era Newport people are buried further down is the colonial section. And I will admit, I have only been there once or twice, but wandering through it is a treat. There are some, some things to see. Perhaps the most significant is God's little acre, the so-called God's little acre, which was the section where blacks were buried in Newport. Now you might not know this, about Newport or New England in general. But were you aware that there were black governors of the New England states? Starting in 1756 in Rhode Island, the black population elected a governor every year. The election was held in June. And the criteria was that any black man who owned a pig, yes, you heard that correctly, a pig, could run for office. Connecticut had a similar practice starting in 1750, and it was understood that the position of the black governor was that they would help to mitigate complaints, mitigate situations, and advocate for the community. They were creating their own form of justice in a world that very seldom had equal justice for them. Massachusetts, New Hampshire, some of the other New England states would eventually follow. So this was a very New England, very traditional practice. But how many of you, and feel free, if you went to school with me in Rhode Island, raise your hand. How many black governors did you hear about? Zero. Actually, less than zero. Because again, we weren't talking about black people. Ever. They were not part of the narrative. And this, to me, is a fascinating history because I was at first confused. I started with Connecticut before Rhode Island. I didn't want to be biased and start with my own state. But I started reading about a group at the Hartford Ancient Burial Ground, which started off as a six-acre plot. It's now four acres. Guess what happened to the rest of those graves? It founded in 1640, so pretty old. There... Quote, in the 1990s, middle school students discovered the legacy of five black governors. That is from the Hartford Current. All right, first of all, I'm throwing this out there. If you need middle schoolers to make a revelation like that, and then the Hartford Current like goes on, like, hey, did you know there were black governors? We didn't know there were black governors. The fact that middle schoolers Doing research uncovered something that the general population was neither taught or knew about, and certainly nothing that was memorialized. This, that, that to me, that one sentence in one paper from the 1990s sums up the entire problem of black cemeteries. It's not our culture, so we're not concerned with it. But the fact was that there was a parallel. And in many cases, equally powerful government that was set up to serve a minority community. That's incredible to me. It's important history. And this is something that went on all over New England. And these individuals were revered within the community. And I bring this up because obviously they are buried respectfully in the ancient burial ground in Hartford and in God's Little Acre in Newport. The fact that more is not said about these individuals is problematic. And the fact that their graves are not studied and are not heralded the same way that, say, you know, the Belmont plot right over at Island Cemetery in Newport is, or, you know, any of the white governors of Connecticut. That's why we have such trouble maintaining and preserving black cemeteries is because the fact is, we're consistently told that black lives and their legacy isn't significant i go on this rant and it, it, and this is why i've had to record this episode 3 times because i feel like i keep getting off on tangents and i keep getting angry is because at the end of the day we know these things now and This is one of the reasons I almost didn't want to do this episode this month. Because the fact is, everybody loves to cram black history into black history month and then conveniently forget about it for the other 11 months. And so I don't want this to be like the token black people episode. Um, I'm going to keep talking about this. Don't worry. And in fact, at this point, I already know that this is going to be a two-part episode because I'm at 40 minutes and I'm not even close to done. But I think that these facts are important. Because individually these facts might not mean much, but when you start to add them up, you see that the neglect of black cemeteries in the 20th century, black cemeteries which are, you know, developed post-Civil War in the Reconstruction era, they are just continuing a legacy that was already there. And part of me wonders even if places like God's Little Acre and the gravestones of Pompey Stevens whether or not they would have survived if they weren't these perfect, old-timey, beautiful headstones, these New England gems that people love, that you could walk past and you don't know it was carved by a black man because he was as talented as his master, as the man who enslaved him at the John Stevens shop. So part of me wonders if becoming part of the mainstream has helped save these individuals, in which case that does make me sad. As much as I think it's really cool being somebody who works in the cemetery world that, you know, the oldest signed artwork by a black artist is a gravestone, I think that's cool, and I think it's exciting because it means it has survived. It also makes me a little sad because it only survived because it was framed in a context that was acceptable to white people. I mean, I'm not sure about the age of my audience, so this could be a reference that is a little bit old. But if you've seen the miniseries version of Alex Haley's Roots, I always think about the scene um, where Kizzy, Kizzy is the daughter of sort of the patriarch of the whole story, Kunti Kinte. Um, she has been sold to a different plantation and does not know that her father has died. And so she goes to her father's grave and she sees the grave has his name Toby, which Toby was the name that his master gave him. And so she takes a rock and it's a wooden gravestone and so she scratches out the word Toby and she writes Kunta Kinte, which is his real name underneath it. And I think that that's one of the hard things about this is the fact that, you know, our... The stones of Pompey Stevens, incredible? Yes, they're beautiful. But is it the traditional art form that he necessarily would have done? Or was he carving in a design or in a motif that he would have chosen? Maybe I'm getting into two deeply philosophical questions, but in my mind, they do draw a very significant parallel. And I'm going to talk about this later when I get to sort of the final topic I want to talk about today because I think that it's important in terms of memorialization that if we are considering this, because I think a lot of people are now considering, you know, marking burials, that it is done in a way that is culturally sensitive, not in a way that we feel comfortable with. All right, let's go back. I want to talk a little bit more about God's Little Acre because it's it's a great example of preservation, but it's also it's tough because it's an easy one to do the preservation on. So so God's Little Acre is a section of the common burying ground in Newport. And they did a, an article recently in um, the National Trust magazine, Saving Places. So I'm going to read you a little bit of that. So God's Little Acre wasn't always so beloved and well-kept. When preservationist Teresa Guzman Stokes moved to Newport in the 1980s as a staffer for the United States Navy, she noticed that the area was overgrown, while the surrounding graveyards were trim and tidy. Accompanied by Rowena Stewart, the founder and then executive director of the Rhode Island Black Heritage Society, she approached the mayor, who arranged for city employees to mow and clean up the site. Over the years, Stokes and her husband Keith, an eighth-generation Newporter, have become the Bering Grounds' most ardent advocates. Along with other supporters in the preservation community, they have organized cleanups in the spring and fall and offered tours for both adults and schoolchildren. Now, I can remember legitimately as a child reading an article in the Providence Journal all about this. So that would have been the early 90s, so this kind of jibes with what I remember. Interest in the burying ground and the stories of those interred there has snowballed in recent years. The stones themselves, however, are deteriorating. Since 1903, when a survey noted more than 300 markers, 70% have been lost. Oh, excuse me, 70, not 70%. I, I got really upset there for a second, 70. See, I'm getting all fired up. Seventy have been lost, although some of these have been recovered. More recently, New England winters are hard on slave gravestones, they are made of layers like puff pastry, and they can splinter apart in freeze-thaw cycles. From 2017 to 2019, the city oversaw the preservation of 22 headstones with funding from the Rhode Island Black Heritage Society and private donations, as well as guidance from the Newport Historic Cemetery Advisory Commission. A 2019 grant for $50,000 from the National Trust for Historic Preservation's African-American Cultural Heritage Action Fund allowed the Preservation Society of Newport County to conserve another 20 headstones last fall and 20 more in the summer. Lisa Cornell and her team at Beyond the Gravestone, a Connecticut-based restoration company, cleaned each marker, filled in the cracks, consolidated the layers, and capped the stones to protect them from water infiltration. It goes on to say where, um, Stokes actually talks about how his grandmother, his mother and grandmother talk about, um, which I believe his mother is 97, he said, talked about when they were growing up, that you couldn't walk, there were so many gravestones in this section. So saying that 70 have been lost in the past hundred years, you have to wonder if before that even more were lost. There are more gravestones serving as ballast than you would care to know, um, Somebody told me that uh, CBS Sunday Morning just did a story about um, the Columbian Cemetery in Washington, D.C., which has been very much in the news because one of the local senators realized that there were gravestones along the bank of the Potomac, and these were the gravestones from the Columbian Cemetery. They moved the graves, didn't move the gravestones. The gravestones were used for riprap along the border of the river. Again, this happened to Monument Cemetery in Philadelphia. It happened to the Lone Mountain Cemeteries in San Francisco. There are more gravestones making up riprap, making up breakwaters, ballast. It's actually, frankly, kind of shocking when you think about how people would have scrimped and saved for these markers, only to have them unceremoniously dumped in a river to stop erosion. So I think that this is an interesting example because... God's Little Acre is lauded as the best preserved, the most intact. When within your and my lifetime, it was anything but. So uh, history tends to be painfully short in these circumstances. But it makes me wonder if is raising awareness actually doing more good. And while. Part of me would say yes, that this is great, that this $50,000 grant and the preservation of these 60 headstones is incredibly important. For a cemetery that already had people advocating for it and was already in good shape, I can't help but wonder if that money could have been better spent in one of the egregiously neglected cemeteries that really, really needs it. I can say this, and over the past month, I've been sort of chipping away at doing this research, If I were to pick the five most endangered cemeteries in Atlanta, they are all black. All. Maybe one white. But I would say for the most part they are all black. I would say white if I was going only by completely abandoned cemeteries. If I went by abandoned and utilized cemeteries, I would say they are all black. There is not a single black cemetery in Atlanta that does not need help. And I... Fully understand giving grace because black cemeteries traditionally don't have the same funding. They don't have the same endowment. They don't have all of the benefits that white cemeteries do. If you were to take away a tenth of the funding that a Historic Oakland Foundation gets every year that they are going to be using for their work and you were to transfer it over to a black cemetery, wow, could you do some good. And I say that even something like Southview. Southview's gotten a lot of attention between John Lewis and Hank Aaron. There's an abandoned section in the back of Southview where there are piles of gravestones that have slid down the hill. Now, I think Southview does an incredible job. I think their grounds are lovely for the most part. And I understand that sometimes you have to let certain sections go in order to fund keeping the rest of it looking good. But if most people went in the back and they saw piles of headstones that are no longer associated with the graves that they originally belonged to, and they saw piles of trash on graves, they would be upset. I'm not going to pick on Southview. Let's talk about Westview. Westview, if you follow the Friends of Westview here in Atlanta, has recently launched a massive campaign to restore their gatehouse. The gatehouse is beautiful. The original section is one of the oldest buildings in Atlanta. It's a lovely stone arch with additions that were added later on, which is where the original offices were for the cemetery. If you drive along Ralph David Abernathy, you can see it. It's still there. It needs a lot of TLC. Now, again, if you were to go into the back of Westview, you would find Stranger's Rest. Stranger's Rest, a holdover from when the city cemeteries were still segregated. So after Oakland Cemetery filled up, they opened Westview. Stranger's Rest on the side was where the black people were buried. If you go there now, it is completely overgrown and there is trash piled on all of those graves. There is no access from the main part of the cemetery. I may have taken a walk through the woods. Ye gods, may culpa. But part of me really doesn't like the fact that they are doing this massive campaign to restore the gatehouse when there are black people covered in trash in the woods. And granted... Westview now being an integrated cemetery, I would say a large percentage of the people who are buried there today are black. And I bet they would not be happy if they knew that their ancestors... That's the reason Southview was started, was because Stranger's Rest was such a mess. If you read D.L. Henderson's book about Southview Cemetery, it opens with a description of the deplorable conditions in the late 19th century. And it hasn't changed one iota in 2021. How about you deal with the dump tires and shopping carts, and trash that are on top of black people's graves before you spend a million dollars on your gatehouse. Do I think preservation is important? Across the board. But also, I think that acknowledging things is way more important. And doing some groundskeeping and at least cleaning that part of the cemetery when you already have a massive grounds crew, you can do that a lot more easily. Because I've seen their posts. Westview is posting about how they are going to get a custom gate made. Guess what? I know metal workers. That's going to cost them a minimum of twenty to $50,000. How many black people's graves in the woods can you clean off for twenty to $50,000? I'm going to bet all of them. Because the fact is, as much as that beautiful custom-made gate is going to look beautiful for people driving by, as much as that shiny, bright curb appeal is going to bring in in terms of endowment, I still think that you send a better message by prioritizing the graves of all the individuals in your cemetery, not just the ones that you cherry pick. Probably just made a lot of enemies here in Atlanta, but you know what? I'll go ahead and call them out on it. And the fact is, even the established cemeteries, for the most part, I will give give a pass on Lincoln Cemetery because for the most part... I think they are probably doing the best of any of the predominantly black cemeteries here in Atlanta, but Chestnut Hill, which is also owned by the same people as Southview, if you go in the back there, it's a disaster. Piney Grove, don't even get me started. Piney Grove is the number one most endangered cemetery here in Atlanta. I know I have shared pictures of it, but they're all black. And again, this is a little bit of a rant because I see $50,000 being spent on preserving 60 gravestones. They are significant gravestones. I am glad that they were preserved. They are an important part of the heritage of Newport, and they were probably very in need. But I also can't help but wonder if that $50,000 could have been better spent. I don't pretend to be a member of the National Trust for Historic Preservation. I don't pretend to make their decisions. It's just a worthwhile question, especially for a group of people that I know are very engaged in preservation and are very passionate about these type of things. So I would also caution, that you know, Pick your battles and think about where your money would be best spent before you donate to something that really might not need it as much as many, many other examples. All right. I'm going to round out today by talking about the last of the early cemeteries, and it's one that I think is probably something that most of you are familiar with, and that is the African-American burial ground in New York City. So in 1697, black burials were banned from Trandy Churchyard. Now, if you listened to the Washington Square Park episode, which I did back in September, you may remember I talked about the fact that Washington Square Park at the time was a predominantly black area. So it was the city cemetery, but the area around it was mostly maintained by free blacks or in some cases still enslaved by the Dutch East India Company. But they were taking care of that sort of valley on either side of the river, which is also where the city cemetery was. So just kind of like to tie it into that history, if you do remember back from that episode. So the folks who were buried in the African-American Burying ground in New York City were most likely from this group. They were originally enslaved by the Dutch East India Company, engaged in trade, and then eventually ended up either being enslaved by or working as freedmen in this lower portion of Manhattan. So in 1991, they began construction on a 34-story federal office building. It was on the lower end of Broadway in Manhattan. Um, and it was being overseen by the GSA, which if you are in historic preservation, you know the GSA actually maintains a lot of historic sites. Um, and because it was federally funded, it had to go through Section 106, which is what I do for a living. And as part of the cultural resource survey that was completed – Um, In the area that was previously known as Republican Alley, they discovered in 1989 that in the preliminary archaeological investigations, they found human remains about 30 feet below street level. Again, if you remember the Washington Square Park episode, it was called 8 to 10 feet under. So these are pretty far down. And that's because, keep in mind, a lot of Manhattan, particularly this portion down by the Battery, all landfill. So what they discovered was essentially a six-acre burial ground, which potentially contained up to 15,000 sets of remains. The estimate is that it dates from as early as the 1630s and was used until about 1795. I find this interesting because it actually overlaps with the Washington Square Park, which was used up until like the 1820s so like essentially the end of the African burial ground was sort of like the beginning of Washington Square Park's burial ground history so they started to to recover remains which given the age and the depth they obviously didn't actually recover 15,000 but work stopped on the federal building and what they decided to do is that they were going to build a memorial on the site instead now The first part of this had to do with reinterment. So after a careful excavation of the site, on November 4th, 1993, all of the excavated human remains were transferred to Howard University, and they did a complete study of them to basically understand who these individuals were, what their lives were like. And then it took 10 years, but in 2003... They were moved back. And so they are reburied at the site on October 4th, 2003. Um, They were put in these beautiful hand-carved coffins. And I will try to post a picture of this. Um, You know, they were made of, you know, African wood to try to capture this. And they made, and I think this is an interesting, so they, they were eventually able to disinter 419 sets of remains. And those were the ones that were reburied in 60 separate coffins. Um, and what they did was they buried them in seven separate, and I think this is interesting, burial mounds. So that when you approach the memorial, you can actually see the burial mounds along there. And that's where they allow people to place flowers and mementos. And ex- you can leave two flowers per person. I don't know how they came up with that particular number. I thought that was kind of weird, but um, you can pour libations. But it does require a permit. So if you are bringing your wild turkey and you are planning on pouring libations to the ancestors, you need a permit to do that. Um, It's New York City. I'm not sure how they enforce that. Now, at this reinterment ceremony, Maya Angelou spoke. They had a number of different traditional African practitioners say prayer services and religious services. And then they built a memorial, which they called the Ancestral Chamber. And before, when I kind of slightly alluded to if we mark graves, we should do it in a way that is culturally sensitive and embraces the beliefs and actual visuals of that culture, I don't know how I actually feel. So they didn't end up building the federal building, which is the Ted Weiss Federal Building. It is a 0.35 acre site. So what it looks like is it's a pointy kind of tent shape. Um, it is made of black polished granite, and I don't want to blame Maya Lin because I think that the Vietnam Memorial is beautiful. I kind of wonder how many Vietnam memorials we have to have, though, because I feel like so many memorials are now just a ripoff of the Vietnam Memorial. And I do kind of feel this. So it was designed by Rodney Leon um, and the architects at AARIS. Um, I will read the elements here because I think it's important to understand, like, the design of things. I did the same thing for the Salem Witch Trials. So there is a wall, of memori- a wall of remembrance that says for all those who were lost, for all those who were stolen, for all those who were left behind, for all those who were forgotten. Then there's, the gro- there's a grove of trees where the burial mounds are the southern wall of the libation chamber shall be engraved with a map containing images and text describing the components of the African Burial Ground National Monument Site in context of the boundaries within Lower Manhattan. I think that's good because it helps understand spatially what it looked like then as opposed to now, which allows people to understand the extent and scope of the burial site's actual size, which extends significantly beyond the boundaries of the memorial site today. Again, I agree with that totally. The ancestral chamber is intended to reflect African cultural, spiritual, and ancestral essence. This spiritual form rises out of the ground like an ancestral pillar and represents the soaring African spirit embracing and comforting all those who enter. The ancestral chamber is oriented towards the east and open to the sky above, allowing natural light to penetrate and illuminate the interior space. The interior of the ancestral chamber provides a sacred space for individual contemplation, reflection, meditation, and prayer. The Circle of the Diaspora has signs, symbols, and images of the African diaspora, which are engraved around the perimeter wall, encircling the Libation Court. These symbols come from different areas and cultures throughout the diaspora, especially Africa, Latin America, and the Caribbean. And that's important to note, I think, because you know I've tried to use the term black as much as I can, even though if you read history... More than five years old, African Americans, the term used. But I think that understanding the diaspora and understanding that black is a much wider cultural phenomenon is important. So I do like that they kind of considered that. But again, this was 2007, so this is pretty recent. The symbolic meaning is described below every image. As one circumambulates around the perimeter of the court and spirals down the processional ramp, these symbols represent themselves as a reminder of the complexity and diversity of African culture in manifestation. They all come together to form a communal place and a reminder of the burial ground being an international center of gathering. The spiral processional ramp. The spiral processional ramp descends down four feet below street level, thereby bringing the person physically and psychologically and spiritually closer to the ancestors at the original interment level. The ramp and stairs serve as bridges between the living and spiritual realm. They symbolize the process of transcendence from physical to spiritual and the passage from the profane to the sacred. The process will evolve from the public secular space of the city to the spiritual space of the libation court and culminate in the sacred space of the ancestral chamber. The Ancestral Libation Court is situated on an access with the Ancestral Chamber. It is located four feet below street level, providing a physical and psychological separation from the public environment. The Libation Court is a communal gathering space where small to medium-scale public cultural ceremonies may occur. The spiritual space is where the reconsecration of the African Burial Ground National Monument will continually take place during the libation or other ceremonial rituals. The sacred ceremonial ritual of libation is the act which will serve as an offering and acknowledgement linking past, present, and future generations in the spirit of Sankofa, an Indinkra symbol of West Africa, meaning to learn from the past. So, I know that was a lot. But I think, as somebody who's an architectural historian, it's important to understand why people design things the way they do and so as much as I'm not a fan of the polished black granite myself and it's made out of like square panels that I can already see water damage being a problem on I don't know how great the ancestral chamber design is I do like the idea of the descent from the profane to the sacred from the secular to the sacred I think that the idea of descending down below level it's really powerful um, and certainly I can remember at places like Escorial, like descending down into the burial chamber where the kings are. You do get this physical sense that you are descending, going into the Roman catacombs. I think that's super cool. In terms of cemetery design and in terms of, you know, memorial design, I love that. I think that's really interesting. Does it make up for what happened? No. Is there an attempt here to make something, though, that is culturally relative to the actual people who were buried there? Yes. And I will say the same thing about the slave cemetery at George Washington's Mount Vernon. There were multiple tries in the past where they built, like, an above-ground brick table tomb, where they built other... I don't want to say meaningless symbols, but more traditionally Western symbols. I don't think that any of that is half as powerful as just having string outlining the grave plots all around you so you can physically see them. And it goes back to me, like, I don't know why it took Kent State so long to figure out that they should just not allow people to park in the places where the bodies fell on May 4th 1970 because I think that the reality of death and the place of burial is powerful in and in itself to really make a physical impression and when I think about Mount Vernon you know there was something that was designed by the students at Howard University that was there I have like a vague memory of that I have a vague memory of that table tomb that's not what I remember being in the slave cemetery at Mount Vernon I remember the graves, each of them outlined, each of them with a small bouquet on them. That's what I remember. And I think in terms of this, you understanding the fact that the ground that we stand on may very be, well be where someone is buried. If this c- cemetery podcast has taught you anything, it's odds are somebody's probably buried where you're standing right now. And I don't mean that to freak you out or to scare you, but it's the fact that the world is very old and that there are a lot of dead people. And unfortunately, because of the nature of our culture, they are not always remembered. So, that's the beginning of my Black Cemeteries rant. Guess what? It's continuing next week. Because next week, I want to take a look at what happens to the Black Cemeteries that are established in the Antebellum period. Not in the Antebellum period, excuse me. In the Reconstruction period. Why those cemeteries are not taken care of. And then lastly how desegregation happens because I read the most incredible article on the desegregation of cemeteries. And as much as I want to read you the whole article, it's 14 pages and that would be the whole episode. I am going to read you significant parts because I think it's important to understand. Hopefully this wasn't too much information. I feel like I covered a lot. I feel like I talked about a lot, ranted a little bit. But I want to try to give you an idea of what the breadth and scope of Black cemeteries is, as opposed to looking at just one tragic example of things that happened. And also because the ongoing problem of preservation in Black cemeteries is still such a major issue, I want you to think about like, what's successful, what's unsuccessful, how it can be done. As always, if you are enjoying the podcast, please, please, please rate and review on your favorite listening app. Um, They do make me much more visible to people who are looking for information on cemeteries. A five-star review is really, really delightful. That would make my day. So if you do have time, please do so. Um, As always, follow along on social media, um, Facebook and Instagram, Tomb with a View podcast, for lots of little extra goodies. I have been busy, so I have not been posting as much as I would have liked to this week. But hopefully we'll get there. As I said, I will be continuing next week. But for now, I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb of the View.